I've got a few minutes to wind things up, and I wanted, now that we have heard from a number of different perspectives, um, to say one thing. There is a sort of elephant in the room. We've heard about elephants' floppy ears, um, but the elephant in the room is still language. Um, we heard Richard uh, end his talk by noting uh, how important a language is probably for this process. It is still, of course, one of the great, uh, wonderful mysteries of our species to understand how it came about. Um, I wanted to make a couple of links. Uh, Kazuo Okanoi and I have talked over many, many years about uh, the relationship of his work with finches uh, and the issue of language uh, evolution. And I wanted to link it up also with the discussions that we've had about domestication. Um, one of the interesting things about uh, humans and domestication is that, in fact, in some respects, uh, particularly as you've heard about our aggressive behavior, but also, as I mentioned, about our smell capacities and so on, um, we look domesticated in a number of ways in our behavior and even in the structure of our brains. On the other hand, unlike almost all other domesticated species, our brains did not get smaller during the course of our evolution, but got, in fact got larger. Um, only very recently was there a slight dip, uh, and it's, it's hard to tell even what that's about. Um, but certainly since the archaic Homo sapiens, Neanderthals, uh, and those slightly earlier than them, uh, there has been a slight decrease in overall brain size. Uh, but it's a little hard to detect and understand because there has been some changes in robusticity of the whole body as well. Um, one of the things that I wanted to bring your attention to in this slide um, is that, in fact, um, there are a number of really interesting parallels in terms of the comparison to the Bengalese finch example and the human example. Uh, and one of those is that the calls that we produce that are spontaneous, that are oftentimes associated with aggression or fear or anger, um, uh, are not usually controlled linguistically, but done so fairly automatically. Uh, screams of fright, uh, the growling that we may engage in when we're particularly angry, uh, that uh, will affect even our speech, are actually controlled for the most part uh, deep in the brain, in areas of the midbrain, and areas that we've been talking about, limbic structures that are involved in emotionality, uh, and would be another species linked to olfaction. Uh, language, on the other hand, uh, is widely distributed in the forebrain. And the more we've learned about language using some of the new tools that we have, um, the more it looks like large parts of the cerebral cortex, the forebrain, are involved in producing uh, language and speech. Uh, we're learning more and more about how many are in actually involved. What's interesting is that one of the major differences uh, between Bengalese finch and white rump munia, and in fact between species of bird that learn their songs and those that have sort of built-in song, uh, don't spend much time learning, is a significant difference in terms of the amount of cortical or forebrain involvement, even though it's not cortex in birds. Uh, it is forebrain involvement. Uh, damage to those structures makes it impossible for birds to learn, as it does um, damage to forebrain structures makes language learning difficult. Uh, what I've done here is list a number of parallels between them. Uh, that we found to be interesting. We've lost a link with specific emotional states. Um, my speech is not so dependent on whether I'm aroused, frightened, or angry. Um, there's been an equalization of the transition biases from sound to sound. So when I laugh, for example, um, a number of things happen. Number one, I don't uh, articulate. My mouth stays locked, and I repeat the same, uh, you might say, uh, syllable the same time, one after another, ha, ha, ha. 
without much variation. Uh, that tells us that, in fact, the, the motor control is separated off. Uh, there's increased an influence of learning. Obviously, to learn language, learning plays an absolutely crucial role. Again, a difference that's characteristic of these two species, that we're just, these two breeds we were just talking about. Um, uh, many more areas of the brain are recruited to this. What's interesting is that all of these areas are not new in humans. They've been around. They've been recruited. Uh, and that, I think, is an important part of the story. Um, uh, social transmission, of course, uh, not just from parents to offspring, but from many other individuals. Again, a similarity with the bird cases. Um, it's interesting that we still do have innate calls, and the same is true with the bird species. Uh, there's many bird species that have uh, what we call alarm calls, uh, contact calls, and so on, all produced for the most part automatically with these deep brain structures, uh, whereas their songs are produced with the forebrain. There's a lot of interesting parallels. So it's not just that studying primates will tell us the answer to these things, but it may well be uh, that there's something to learn here. And finally, uh, about language, uh, is that it's unlike most other vocalizational systems or communication systems. It has linked together a wide variety of structures, evolved previously to do something very different, but works synergistically to produce language. Um, the question that I want to ask is whether or not the relaxation of selection that may have come along with this process. Um, that is, not any longer forcing certain vocalizations, certain behaviors to be highly constrained and controlled by our emotional states may have released the possibility for these other systems to work. Uh, there's some indication that within the Poitmoonia versus Bengalese Finch example that there's been significant relaxation as well as potential uh, inadvertent selection by females. Uh, the result is that the human case um, is a really interesting, you might say, mosaic in which there may have been strong selection for some features uh, and relaxed selection for others um, that may in fact have been initiated by a kind of domestication process and carried along back and forth, one opening up new possibilities for the other. Um, so just to end, I want to say um, how prescient Darwin was. Uh, Darwin really, by looking at just the examples he had available to him, uh, really saw a lot of these features. That taming is a crucial part of it, though there may be other aspects besides taming. Certainly the indirect effects that we've seen are very important. Um, humans, not necessary to be involved in this process. Um, but humans can play a role and can exaggerate some traits. Um, as we saw, domestication produces a lot of variability and lots of traits, um, uh, including a lot of behavioral plasticity. Um, and finally, uh, what I want to suggest is that although brain size is reduced in a lot of species, particularly those that we human beings have tried to control, it may not necessarily be part of that same suite. And as we've seen, even with the example of neural crest, uh, as a potential theory for how this may happen, uh, the brain may have a totally separate story, a totally independent story. Um, all of these things suggest that there's a lot to learn by studying domestication and to look at all aspects of it. Uh, let me just end by pointing out how flexible we are as a species. Um, and by flexible, I mean something very similar to what we see in domesticated um, animals that we use for food or we use as pets. Um, 
We're incredibly flexible and flexible in ways that you would be unlikely to expect a typical species to be. Uh, we're very flexible in terms of our ability to be controlled socially in terms of our mating, who we can have long-term reproductive relationships with, oftentimes controlled socially, controlled symbolically. Um, we are so easily manipulated by symbols. These are things that suggest, like other species, in a sense, a docility, but in this case, a docility to that very thing that makes us so distinctive, our symbolic capabilities. Uh, in one sense, um, we're highly domesticated and probably the domestication uh, has led to a variety of other traits that make us like other domesticated species but also maybe uniquely domesticated among all species on Earth. So with that, um, I'll end my few comments uh, and uh, open it up. First of all, I think, um, Robert, you're going to um, entertain some discussion from the first half of the session, and as I read through your comments, I'll entertain some questions from the audience about the second half. Thank you all for attending, um, and uh, I hope you have great questions. So we're going to go over some questions from the first half of today's talk. So first I'll ask Bob Wayne to come up. I have a couple of questions for him. So there were, um, across the speakers, there are a number of questions about various species. So <laughs> I don't know if the speakers will have anything particular to say about those species, but they can use the question as a springboard to say whatever they want to say that they didn't get to say in their 18 minutes. <laughs> so um, first of all, there was a question, Bob, about um, if you know, have looked at or know anything about any results, specific results for Mexican hairless dogs. <laughs> Uh, they have been looked at. We published a paper many years ago. Sorry, and it was Mexican hairless dogs. Yes, the, the national dog of Mexico, it's sometimes said. And they come in a variety of sizes and shapes, but they're all united by the fact that they are hairless. We, thinking that um, actually dogs arrived here in North America and the New World very early, that there might be some lineages of those native New World dog left. And so we had evidence from pre-Columbian remains that indeed there were very distinct genetic types existing before the arrival of Columbus and we searched far and wide for evidence of these um, old uh, lineages and we never really found them. We found hints of some evidence and we looked first at the um, Mexican hairless and uh, they have been so thoroughly interbred with European dogs that there's no sign that they are a native dog in any sense and actually the genetic mutation responsible for the hairlessness is known as well. So then there was a question, we're sort of <laughs> broadening out here. Um, there's a question about um, cetaceans and whether you know if there's been any work done on cetaceans with regard to their ability to interact with humans, be trained, um, have social interactions, bond with humans, etc. I mean, there's also the blackfish phenomenon, which you may or may not want to address. So I don't know if you know anything about cetaceans in that regard. Not much. I was trained as a marine biologist, and I do have a student working on cetaceans. They're fascinating. Uh, but I really don't know that much uh, about the genetic basis for behavior in cetaceans. Certainly they are a parallel in some ways to humans. And then finally, um, I wanted to ask you if um, you um, have any indication from you know, your genetic studies of 
there being any selection for social traits in the domestication of dogs. So I remember in the Van Holt paper, you mentioned that one of the genes that you found that changes from wolves to dogs is one of the many genes that are related to Williams syndrome in, in humans. Um, and there were some comments that were made sort of in a small part of that paper that I was wondering if you'd like to expand upon. I think um, behavior is going to be a real difficult nut to crack with regard to genetics because I think the, unlike phenotypic traits, breed-defining traits, I think behavior is going to involve many more genes of small effect. So it's going to take a whole different experimental design to dissect the influence of uh, genes on behavior. So, no, we haven't really looked into that in much detail. There are some natural experiments out there in that we have uh, thoroughly domesticated dogs represented by our, our distinct breeds, we have um, somewhat feral dogs, like the pariah dogs of India. We have dingoes, which are entirely feral. And in most places in the world, actually, dogs are somewhat free-living. They're in loose association with humans. So we have a whole variety of stages of what we might call progressive domestication that we can explore for genetic differences. And myself and a number of colleagues are trying to gather samples so that we have village dogs, we have dingoes, we have New Guinea singing dogs, and then we have breed dogs as well for comparison. And so one final question, which is also addressed to Anna. So Anna, you can come up and you can address it after Bob does. So this is sort of an ethical question, which I think it's probably important to address, is what do you think about the trend of breeding canines to the point where they have serious medical issues? Um, so do you think it's okay to do this kind of thing in the interest of pursuing science? Who have medical issues, sort of hip, hip problems, those kinds of things. Bob, you want to address yeah, it first? Um, first, I started to uh, be so heavily involved in the fox domestication experiment. Uh, I did the postdoc with Dr. Greg Ackland and Gas Aguirre at uh, Cornell, and we were studying the genes and mutations responsible for canine inherited diseases. And there is very big kind of push to try to um, genotype um, dogs for any known uh, diseases and kind of to, pre to prevent distribution of these uh, known mutations in uh, uh, populations. So that's kind of one of the ways to try to make our dog population healthier. And I would agree that, you know, if you knew that your dog is a carrier of, uh, um, of alleles for the disease, you know, known diseases, you know, it's better not to, to, not to breed with dog. But, of course, that... It kind of has several, several kind of sides. It's very easy for uh, simple, simple Mendelian traits, and it's more difficult for, for such diseases like, for example, hip dysplasia, where there is a complex inheritance, and uh, uh, we still don't know, you know how many genes are involved and uh, how to say that um, for sure that this dog should not be bred, except if it has really like, very, very b bad hips. Um, so I would say that we gradually should eliminate these dogs from population, but uh, uh, we're not always sure how to do that. But I think another very big problem with uh, dog breeding is that we are trying to select our dogs for such extreme phenotypes that we are making them unhealthy just by basically designing our st kind of s selective standards so high. Uh, then, uh, you know, the best examples, I guess, is... Uh, um, um, this, um, the, uh, dogs which, um, the, uh, the bulldogs who have you know, basically their brains more bigger than their, uh, the sizes of their skulls, uh, skulls because uh, the shape of the skull, skull which we want to have kind of not enough of the brain um, so you know I'm, I'm a little bit exaggerating that but 
I think uh, there is a lot of different sizes, inherited diseases, and also just kind of way we're going with our selective breeding. Bobby, would you like to address that question? I don't really know if I could add that much to that. Um, you know, I love the diversity in, in breed dogs. That's uh, part of the reason I became interested in researching them. But that said, I'm also a geneticist, and I love the idea of genetic variability, and I'm not fond of inbreeding depression. And uh, that I think to, for dogs to be healthy, they have to be outbred to some extent. And breeders know this. They have a genetic problem in their line, and they often outbreed even to another breed. And I think the standards that we make, American Kennel Club and British Kennel Club standards, we're breeding to a standard, and we're enforcing um, a pedigree requirement that that individual has to be derived from other members of the same breed, I think is too much of an onus on the genetics of those breeds, and that uh, we can still have you know, wonderful-looking Boston Terriers and dwarf dog breeds, but just select for maybe those phenotypes, but allow there to be more crossing amongst breeds uh, and, and try to enhance or remove a lot of these genetic problems that come along as garbage just when we um, inbreed and narrow the genetic base. Okay, thanks, Bob. That was the last question that you're on the spot for. So, Anna, I've got some more for you. Um, I, I think that this was, I tried to cover this initially, but maybe um, this person wasn't able to be here in the beginning, but just to make sure that everybody understands this. So there was a question about whether tame domesticated foxes bark into adulthood and assuming that wild foxes bark as pups, which the questioner wasn't sure about. So you want to reiterate that for everyone so they understand how the vocal behavior patterns are? Um, you know, actually, the, uh, both uh, wild and domesticated foxes bark, um, bark, bark the sounds which, we, which uh, uh, vocal scientists call bark does exist, but we do it very rare. Um, so, and it's it's hard to say that it's actually more common in a uh, tame fox repertoire, the barking, than it is in uh, unselected foxes. Uh, uh, it was kind of originally with thought that uh, uh, this is... Vocalization patterns of domesticated foxes and aggressive foxes in response to human presence were very different. It's still kind of not a, not a bark which would fit the standard of that sound which scientists call bark, but they're different. But it doesn't really, the domestication doesn't really change completely the way how the foxes can make their sounds. We just use them in a different context. Because if you will look at the um, foxes which are unselected for behavior, how we interact with each other, they are actually pronounce the overt sounds that domesticated foxes pronounce towards humans. So basically, the sounds didn't go away. So we have, we, foxes unselected for behavior and foxes selected, selected for behavior have the same sounds. We just use them in a diff different context. Uh, it's at least as much as I know. That actually leads right into the next question, which is, do tame foxes behave differently from aggressive foxes in social settings with other foxes, and if so, how so? Yeah, it's an interesting question, and uh, uh, we, we have to say that, yes, we do dif uh, behave differently. And the, the main difference is that the tame foxes, they seem to be very constantly want to interact. So like if you have two tame foxes uh, in a kind of free cage system set up and you have uh, originally you put one tame fox in cage number one and another fox tame fox in cage number three and when you open the doors and let them to interact, these tame foxes will basically interact all the time. They can um, um, 
um, you know, have some little fights that's that, that's possible, you know, like be, if you keep them in that setup for some period of time. But mostly it will be friendly interaction, and mostly it will be indeed the interaction. We will spend a lot of time together in one cage, and uh, um, we will not ignore each other. In case of unselected foxes, we much more often observe that foxes would spend more time alone. They would not in, interact with each other as, as much as, uh, uh, as uh, uh, tame foxes in general. And another thing which is extremely interesting, common, then we try to test behavior of tame foxes and aggressive talk foxes when we put them together in one pair. These guys completely cannot kind of understand each other. So the tame foxes uh, continue to, to be willing to interact. They will come to the cage of aggressive fox and, you know, say and kind of, you know, play with me, play with me. And aggressive fox can play with that tame fox for a while, but then it became bored or, you know, that annoyed and start to attack tame fox. And it's not uh, you know, that they are really ag aggressive and they want really to harm the tame fox, but the tame fox just want to be social all the time. That, that's what we see. Okay, thank you, Anna. That was the last question for you. Um, so... <laughs> So I have a couple questions for Bob Francisca, so want to come up. So this is another species question. So can Spanish fighting bulls be used as a natural experiment to test possible reversal of evolutionary trends? Do you have anything to say about Spanish fighting bulls? Uh, not much. Okay. <laughs> Anyone else want to take that question? <laughs> Okay, so my other question for you was... Sorry. <laughs> um, so I believe you mentioned that um, you didn't see any uh, facial, noticeable facial retraction in the, in the domesticated foxes versus the undomesticated foxes. Okay. Yeah, um, so the question was, do you think that's just because of the, there hasn't been enough of a time period for it to emerge, or what do you think that might be due to, or whether it, it over time, would expect, you would expect it to appear? Okay. Um, the, rep the reports and in publications by people who have worked directly with um, silver foxes are that faces have become shorter and broader. Um, yeah, it's a little actually a, a, a misnomer to say that because faces get broader simply because there's a greater amount of reduction in the length. <laughs> so there's this idea that faces actually broaden. They don't. They're getting narrower and shorter. It's just the relative degrees of those produce a, an overall shape that looks broader. That actually turns out to be a very interesting kind of shape-size analysis conundrum. But um, the point is that, uh, first of all, if we're going to make comparisons to other species, um, if we're talking about uh, ancestral wolves and, and, and prehistoric dogs and fossil hominins, all we have are skeletons. And so we have to take, be able to take the measurements on the bones or on the skeletons. And there just hasn't been much of that. I will say that um, while we were there visiting <coughs> with uh, Ludmila Trut and Dr. Karlamova, they um, pulled out some data and uh, we did comparisons or they showed us their data for uh, overall cranial length versus body length. Um, now, these are, I was a little worried about these measurements because they're kind of, you know, you're using a soft tissue nose and you're going to a certain point on the back of the skull. It's not very uh, exacting. But nonetheless, there, there was a clear, statistically significant difference in the, in the length of that cranium 
a big part of which is the face, uh, relative to body length. And what we're hoping to do is be able to nail that down by taking the measurements directly on the skeletons. There, have, there has been some work with x-rays, but anybody who's worked with x-rays know it's very, knows it's very difficult to take exacting measurements off of, especially older x-rays and x-rays of any kind. You need CT scans to do it, do it properly, which um, you know, we'll be doing as well. Um, so uh, there's some preliminary evidence for that, and we want to we tr try to nail that down a bit. Great, thank you. So that was the last question for you. Um, Terry, I have some questions for you if you're not preoccupied sorting questions in your lap right now. Uh, this is a sort of basic question, but I think it's important to sort of clear it up. When measuring human brain size, which has declined during recent evolution, do scientists take into account the many folds in the cortex of the human brain? The folds, if opened or flattened out, would make up a large surface area of the human brain. So you want to address that? Hmm. First of all, what we know about uh, non-living humans uh, and their brains is not their brains. Uh, all we can do is look at the internal structure of the skull. Now, it turns out that brains do, over time, leave impressions on the inside of skulls, and one can get a very crude estimate. It's unfortunate that as our very large brains um, don't leave much of an impression because there's actually a very thick kind of a leathery surface that actually protects them against the skull. We know a little bit about that. Uh, we also know, however, that uh, gyrification, the folding of brains um, in mammals, is remarkably predictable. It's predictable on the total volume of brains. And so we have a pretty good guess that when we look at a brain of a particular size, uh, we know how to adjust our thinking about the folding of those brains. Uh, it turns out there are some interesting exceptions to this. Um, uh, dolphins and whales, for example, have very thin cerebral cortex, and just like you might expect, uh, a thin sheet of paper folds more easily uh, than a thick sheet of paper. Uh, and as a result, they have much more folded brains, uh, even though um, it's probably the same principle at work. So as far as we know, um, the size of a brain is a pretty good estimate as to how well it's folded, how much tissue is hidden underneath, and how much tissue is on the surface. Okay, thank you. And I got a couple questions on um, the olfactory system. So is the reduction of olfactory regions of the brain in dogs also seen in bloodhounds? compared to other dogs. <laughs> Again, I fail the pop quiz. Um, I don't know. There is quite a bit of variability in olfactory bulbs in dogs uh, across species, and perhaps uh, someone who's more of a dog expert has more information about this than I do. Um, but uh, in general, on average, and this is one of those problems with a, with a, a, a species that has such variability, such incredible variability to come up with the, quote, average dog and say, here's what the average dog olfactory bulb is like is not easy. On average, what we can say is when we look at dogs that are roughly equivalent to wolf body size and brain size, the olfactory bulbs are quite small. In terms of bloodhounds, I don't know. There clearly has been selection uh, within domestic speeds to speak uh, uh, breeds of dogs uh, for their abilities uh, for olfaction. Um, it is the case uh, that primates in general are significantly reduced 
um, than other mammals, but it's quite variable among other mammals as well. Um, but as far as I know, I suspect that wolves are better than bloodhounds. <clears throat> Do I have something to say about that? Oh, yeah, go ahead, Bob. Uh, well, we, we really don't know for sure, but we are investigating, actually, the diversity of olfactory receptors across breeds, and at the same time, um, Brent Craven at Penn State is making flow models of the nose in different dogs and calculating the area of the epithelial tissue that's responsible for um, receiving odorants and also measuring flow through the nose. We think all those things are important. So small, so breeds which have um, pushed-in faces generally have less flow through the nose, and that probably affects their smell ability, um, smelling ability. And uh, bloodhounds, we don't know per se, even though we do have some preliminary data. It's also, beyond that, a behavioral question because um, some dogs are just more interested in smelling things than others. And uh, so all those factors are complexities in the ability of a particular dog to smell. So I think this is a question that you will be able to answer. <laughs> I, have to, I, take off, I have to take off my glasses. Could the reduction in olfactory cortex in domesticated animals be related to ease of domestication? That is to say, is it possible that animals with reduced olfactory processing were incidentally selected because they weren't as afraid of humans? There's probably two parts to that question. One has to do with humans, and one has to do with what else olfaction does. Uh, as I mentioned in most mammals, olfaction is very, very important for dis determining the sex of another partner, a potential partner, um, determining uh, the age of another individual, uh, and uh, of simply activating the interest in sexual activity. Uh, we do know that damaging uh, the olfactory bulbs in a variety of species uh, can almost completely eliminate their ability to mate. Um, so uh, what it's likely to be the case is that almost certainly in selecting animals that were easy to mate and in fact easy to selectively breed, um, almost certainly there was some selection um, to reduce the influence of powerful olfactory signals. Um, it may well be also that since olfaction plays an absolutely crucial role in identifying potential predators and so on, um, that recognizing uh, a strange species, a different species, uh, activates a spontaneous kind of uh, fear response and, and reaction response. Could well be that both were being selected, um, not because we're selecting on olfaction, but in fact because we're selecting on these other effects. These would be, in effect, selecting against uh, various forms of reactive uh, ag aggression, reactive fear, um, uh, and so on, uh, all could affect the olfactory system. Okay, so broadening out a little bit, um, how plausible is it that brain regions diminished in size with domestication because the range of threats and challenges decreased, therefore requiring less brain power to thrive or survive? Mm. Uh, many people have suggested that. In fact, many people have suggested that one of the um, reasons that we see reduction is not just, um, in effect, as I just described, selecting against some trait that may have caused damage to accumulate in olfactory and limbic systems across species, but also that, um, that just the challenges that animals face 
means that, in effect, there's nothing to maintain a variety of structures. There's no strong reason to be very good at detecting certain kinds of things. It's interesting that, that this is probably resolvable species to species because although I showed uh, only really a couple of examples of some structures that were reduced and other structures not so reduced in different species, it does vary across species. Uh, we find that some species have very significant reduction in visual capacity uh, and other species reduction in motor capacity. That may also have to do with the kind of uh, environment they're kept in. Animals that may be kept in cages, um, in fact, uh, very likely don't have the kind of either developmental stimulation or long-term uh, generation to generation a demand on motor behavior. Uh, other animals, it may be something otherwise. So uh, the issue is that there's a lot to learn about this. There's a lot of variability. And um, almost certainly it's the case that um, uh, the difference in cognitive capacity of lots of animals is the result of just the reduction of demands. I should say that there are some counterexamples. Uh, it's been shown recently that um, guinea pigs, domesticated guinea pigs, uh, are actually better at learning mazes uh, than uh, uh, guinea pigs that come from the wild. It's a surprise in part because guinea pigs oftentimes have to navigate complicated uh, tunnel systems and so on in the wild. Uh, but and this is a case in which it's gone the opposite direction. Uh, that's probably the case with some other species as well, so we shouldn't assume that it's always reduction. And this is a, re a related question. I think you've addressed some of it, so maybe you don't. We'll see if you have more to say. What effects do reduced cortex size uh, in domesticated humans have on our behavior slash intelligence slash cognitive abilities compared to early Homo sapiens? Since I assume you were around at the time. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. I, I talked to them and they didn't have much to say. Um, the... The fact is that we do have a much enlarged brain, um, and this is an exception to everything we've been seeing um, in terms of domestication, and therefore it's probably a very different story to be told. Uh, the important thing that I wanted to get across is that although we are now getting a handle on a number of very specific kinds of processes, um, and we've heard at least some pretty good hypotheses uh, today, uh, there are probably many things going on. Uh, the reason I mentioned briefly recent studies of the, the genome of domesticated rabbits, uh, it turns out that it's quite variable, quite complex, and we don't yet have a handle on exactly what was being selected or non-selected in those cases and allowed to relax. Uh, in terms of humans, I think we can't assume that we understand uh, humans as having a reduced uh, brain size having to do with something like domestication. I don't think we can assume that that's the case. It's a very subtle effect. It's a very recent effect. Uh, and it's uh, in the background of a major difference between ourselves and our ancestors and our other primates is we have a very much enlarged brain, not what you'd expect by domestication. Great. Thank you. That was the last question for you. And with that, I yield the rest of the question and answer period to you as chair. Very good. <laughs> So I, I have a number of questions also for people at both at the beginning and towards the end of uh, the session today. Um, and the first one uh, can be addressed to a number of uh, the speakers. Uh, and someone asked me, why is the term feminization used to describe the traits of domestication? 
Um, let me add to that um, that almost all that we've talked about today is for the most part, not entirely, but for the most part, changes in male aggressiveness uh, and male reactiveness. It might be helpful to also uh, hear a response from those of you that both use the term feminization uh, and also we're talking about reduction of aggression uh, to make a comment or two. So, Professor Wayne, maybe you want to start. Well, the term feminization is relevant because what we're modeling or thinking about or, or, or talking about is the idea that, uh, you know, one of two dynamics, either sort of early circulating testosterone in fetal development or later uh, testosterone during periods of uh, pubertal development with spikes in, 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 in testosterone, for example, um, for example, have been shown in the latter case in, in, in testosterone at pubertal development and later uh, have been linked to elongated faces in human males and to uh, enlarged brow ridges, you know, what we technically call superorbital tori. Um, and um, uh, uh, circulating fetal testosterone dynamics seem to impact um, broader faces uh, as opposed to uh, longer faces and and have been linked to, I'm sure many of you have heard about, the, the 2D, 4D digit ratio um, differences between uh, males or hyper males and males and females. So the idea is it's feminization because under conditions of less aggressiveness and all the dynamics that would reduce uh, androgenic activity, um, you are getting less of that, which is producing um, not only behavioral differences, less, uh, I guess, perhaps both proactive and reactive responses, um, but also smaller facial structure. So, so that's the term feminization. I'll, I'll mention something that's very interesting, though. It, it's, it's very complicated because uh, in talking with the um, Fox researchers, it became clear to me, something that had initially confused me, was that the aggressive strain of foxes had the same sexual dimorphism levels as the tame foxes, which just absolutely made no sense to me, and I, and I was confused about that. But they cleared that up for me because what their argument was that in the case of tame foxes, males are reducing down to females. But in the case of the aggressive foxes, females are getting uh, more aggressive towards, towards males. Uh, you know, towards the male range. So the ratio between the two doesn't look that different. But what is happening in the, in the respective sexes is very different and is completely consistent with, you know, all the arguments that have been, that have been put forward. Many of you use the, the concepts, and so if there's someone else that has uh, want to respond, Richard, perhaps, um, possibly uh, Tecumseh, do you have anything? No? Okay. This is a, a question for Kazuo Okanoya. Um, so if you sneak your way up here uh, the question uh, has to do also with females uh, and I think it's uh, following right along this tr trend uh, and that is the question uh, uh, how do you know given the fact that these were artificially bred uh, where people put birds together or didn't put birds together um, what kind of evidence um, and how do you assess it that females had some choice in males, or, or how do you think about that problem? 
Uh, there's a second part of this, and um, uh, I'll ask it after this. Okay. Well, actually, I'm not saying that females have a choice. This is indirect female choice, okay? When a female is paired with a guy with a nice song, that female decides to allocate more reproductive resources to that mating. Okay, so females are not active, actively selecting, but humans are selecting uh, reproductively successful peers. By doing so, um, we are indirectly promoting female choice. Is that clear? Okay. Don't run away. Um, the, ne the next question uh, is very, very similar. It's, it's related to this. Um, and the question is, um, what, if we can now talk about the domestication of the Bengalese finch, um, in contrast to that, what, what would you say the uh, white ramunia were selected for in the wild that's now being, in a sense, changed? Okay, the munias are living in the wild, <laughs> and the munias are in danger of predation. Bengalese are not. And singing complex song requires more cognitive resource that is, uh, that is making escaping from predator um, more difficult, okay? That's one thing. And another thing is songs are used as a uh, tag for species identification. By singing certain song, you're saying, oh, I'm saying that, well, I am a white-rumped moonia. Right, um, but if you make songs too complex, then the uh, the this um, tag as a species identity may be amb become ambiguous. In the wild, where several species are living together, then making the species identification as simple as simple possible is important. Therefore, simpler song is more. Um, important in the wide white lampedemonia. Okay. The next two questions are directed to um, Professor Fitch and Professor Rangham, uh, and uh, they have multiple parts, and so you can decide how you want to divide up answering them. Um, I'll start with uh, Tecumseh. Um, how does the early socialization of infant animals translate to or compare to uh, the early socialization of humans? Uh, and how might there be a relationship between them? I think I'm going to say I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I'm actually, I came to this conference hoping that, that the human people would tell me how all this uh, domestication syndrome stuff connects with humans. Uh, yeah. I don't know. Any, anybody else? <laughs> I'm going to try to interpret the question. How's that? You can um, answer it too. <laughs> uh, and the real question is, of course, that um, early development, there is a effectively sometimes called a sensitive period, uh, particularly in dogs. For example, we were talking about dogs. Um, so Professor Wayne may want to have something to say about this as well. Um, that is, there's a period of time when socialization uh, is, an, is very important. Uh, for humans to set things into the future. Uh, and so the question is, do we have a similar sort of period and maybe putting in the context of neoteny or pedomorphism, is it extended in us? 
Well, I, I can't say what our research shows. Our research shows what there is clearly a broader window of um, learning possibility of human babies, which we already know from uh, behavior. If we compare humans to apes, I guess this is true, right? Uh, and um, but what we just found is simply what could be one of the possible uh, basis, molecular basis for this process. Because uh, if you just say, well, human babies can learn, and if you send chimpanzee baby to school, it will not get a good grades, obviously. <laughs> uh, so then uh, you can say, well, could it be explained by the fact that have, we have bigger brain? And we don't think this is the real explanation. We think what, um, with uh, extended period of synaptogenesis, when connections between neurons are formed, and actually even extending over... Uh, our adulthood uh, gives our brain the flexibility to get the information from environment. Uh, so this is just about the mechanism. We want to know why our brains uh, work like this and why we can learn. Whether it's related to domestication or not, I really cannot say because we haven't done any parallel studies in, let's say, bonobos, which would be extremely interesting, or other domesticated species, because if we can see what there is a parallel process in other domesticated species, it would be a very strong indication what in, indeed relate to this kind of processes as uh, increased um, uh, exploratory behavior, curiosity, and so on. All right, so I'm going to move on to some more um, philosophical questions, perhaps. Um, uh, and these are a couple of questions that both um, are addressed to both the sort of um, what Richard you've described as sort of active aggression, proactive aggression, as opposed to sort of reactive aggression. Um, uh, and the, the one statement here is um, it's, there's an amazing allegory here to what is happening with, for example, ISIS and Western coalitions. A uh, number of uh, questions have come through, asking, um, uh, in a sense, what are the lessons about aggression and humans and how humans are different than other species that we might be able to take away from this? Uh, how proactive aggression uh, may be to the advantage or disadvantage um, of the species uh, currently in for the long term? Okay. Okay. <laughs> um. Well, I, I think it's very useful to think about the differences between these two styles of aggression because it does help us make sense of this um, very odd mixture in humans of um, uh, tremendous tolerance at one level and uh, a nastiness at another. I, I think that uh, the tendency that many people have to think of proactive aggression as coming purely out of ideology and having really nothing to do with our biology is quite widespread and dangerous. Uh, it seems to me to be much more sensible to um, investigate this with an open mind and the full possibility that uh, motivations to use tremendous power imbalances to um, uh, do terrible things to, to victims should easily be seen as part of our evolutionary heritage. But good news about all that is that uh, if you take other species in which there is a clear capacity for proactive aggression, and chimpanzees are a very obvious one, then they don't show it if there are um, balances of power. It's quite clear that it's when you have imbalances of power that you see it. And if that is a lesson that we can take to the modern time, then we can marry it to the fact that 
as Steve Pinker wrote so eloquently over the last couple of years, uh, there has been a terrific reduction in the tendency for humans to uh, be violent towards each other, even though, of course, you're going to get lots of ups and downs and you don't know about the future. And the way in which that reduction has happened can easily be seen as consequent upon the development of institutions that have arranged to reduce imbalances of power. So the short story for me is uh, let's acknowledge the fact that humans, and in particular males, are always going to be susceptible to the allure of violence and that we need to be constantly on our minds to uh, make sure we have arrangements to anticipate it and and um, make it less attractive. Okay. <laughs> um, the last question uh, here on the, to you is uh, has to do with uh, the opposite side of the story we've been talking about. Uh, there have been a couple of questions about the capacity for empathy. Um, uh, we've been talking about sort of reduction of aggressive behavior, the aggress uh, reduction of reactive behavior. Uh, but, of course, the opposite side of that, something that Franz de Waal has made uh, a big deal about recently, is the role that empathy plays both in other species and in ourselves. Um, is there a flip side to this story uh, about empathy in terms of domestication? Um. Well, uh, empathy, um, uh, taking another's perspective um, and uh, understanding uh, what they're feeling and, and being able to respond to that. I, I don't know if it's a, anything particular about humans other than uh, associated with our greater intelligence uh, in general, uh, because as Franz Duval has shown, there is a capacity for empathy in, in a variety of animals. I would just note that it's not always a good thing. There have been uh, psychological experiments in which people who have more empathy are more effective at intergroup aggression because it means you understand your enemy better. So empathy isn't necessarily a good thing. Um, I do think that um, we should take very seriously the significance of capital punishment as a, an evolutionary dynamic. And one of the ways in which empathy feeds into this is that it is so important for humans not to be the outsider within your small group, your claustrophobic little group where if you are the funny one, if you are the strange one, then it's not just that people might be mean to you and, and sort of, you know, call you funny names, but there is a tremendous capacity uh, for them to kill you. And that means that the selection pressure to be able to really understand what other people in your group are thinking and feeling is very, very strong. So it wouldn't surprise me if we could make an argument that humans become more empathetic simply as a way to make sure that they are not the outsider in that dynamic. All right, let me move to the last question. It's um, sort of directed to me um, by a colleague. Uh, and th the question is, is this. Um, in domesticated species, we've seen two things linked. I mentioned one and talked about it consi considerably, and others have been mentioned. Uh, the one I mentioned was, of course, the reduction in limbic structures, uh, one of those structures that's significantly reduced in many domesticated species. It's called the hippocampus. Hippocampus plays a crucial role in, uh, in spatial navigation. We just learned that two, uh, three new Nobel Prizes have been given for some of this work. Um, it also is absolutely crucial for consolidating memory uh, about events in your life. Uh, uh, interestingly enough, it's one of the few structures 
that Professor Gage has actually done major work to show, uh, one of the few structures in the, in the brain that generates new neurons uh, and can have neurons die and be reborn over, over the course of time. Interestingly enough, the death and the birth of those neurons is now understood also to be under control of stress hormones to some extent uh, and the level of stress hormones. Um, seems to affect that system quite sufficient, significantly so that high stress levels means that there's a loss of these cells called dentate gyrus granule cells. Um, uh, so it's interesting that a structure that has been reduced in uh, size in domesticated species is associated also with species that typically have some kind of reduced stress uh, response. Um, and the answer is, I don't know why they're linked but that's an interesting question. Um, and with that, I have no more questions. Thank you very much. Thank you to all those who made this symposium possible, to all of our featured speakers. To all of our individual supporters, I hope more of you will join us and to the audience for attending and your great questions now. I have been required by two of my supervisors to lodge a formal complaint here about the fact that they were not represented here today. As they pointed out to me, after all, we domesticated you. And as they also pointed out, dogs have owners and cats have staff. <laughs> so I'll invite you all to the future Carter Symposium. I hope you all had a good time. <laughs>